Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. John Jastrzemski. Sports Radio 101.9 FM. And Sports Radio 66. WFAN. Power number two, it's 8.03 here on this Wednesday evening. It's JJ, John Shostremsky. We're taking you through the next three hours right here on The Fan. Get aboard at 877-337-6666. And certainly hoping that there's some legitimate progress being made with Rob Manford and Tony Clark. And looks like we're moving in on a 60 or so game 2020 season. So... To break it all down, a guy knows a thing or two about winning in the month of October, a Hall of Famer, a guy who was as pure an artist as you're ever going to see on the mound. Let's welcome in the former Brave, the former Met, the Hall of Famer, Tommy Glavin. Tom, it's John Jastrzemski. Appreciate a couple minutes. How you doing today, my friend? I'm doing well. Thank you. How you doing? Tom, we're doing all right, man. I would be doing a little better if we hit him a little straighter on the golf course, but I think, you know, unless your name is Glavin, Maddox, or Smoltz, and we know those competitions you guys used to have on the golf course, that goes for all of us. But on a much more serious note, this 60 or so game proposal that's being talked about, you know, Monday it felt like there were these feelings of despair. A whole lot of people were upset. The possibility of not having a season at all kind of stung and a lot of hurt a lot of people. Um, what was your take when you found out that Rob Manfred and Tony Clark sat down, had an agreement, and it seems like they're making steps in the right direction? You feeling positive vibes to come out of baseball in the MLBPA? Well, I feel much more positive about it for sure. And, you know, I can tell you from my experience uh, in labor negotiations, uh, the fact that Tony and Rob sat down face-to-face is, is a great sign. Uh, anytime you can get the parties sitting down face to face talking and you can get, uh, all the nonsense that's gone on out of the newspapers, uh, then I think that's usually a pretty good sign that things are going in the right direction. So, um, I think that for the most part, it, it, it looks like the players have stood their ground on what they thought they had as an agreement with 100% prorated salaries for however many games they played. And, 
you know, basically left it up to, okay, how many games are we going to play? So, um, you know, I, I, I never thought it was going to be as few as 50, and I certainly didn't think it was going to be as many as 82 uh, based on that formula. So there was a sweet spot there somewhere in the middle, and, and uh, it seems as though uh, Rob and Tony have been able to sit down and kind of work their way through and get to a point where both sides seem to be uh, at least a little bit, feeling a little bit better about where they are in this thing, and hopefully we're going to get baseball soon. Tommy, you were part of those 1994 labor negotiations, so you've been through this rodeo. Did you see eerie parallels and similarities to what you went through back in 1994 or very, very different? No, I mean, I think there were some parallels, but under different circumstances, right? I mean, when the 94 strike happened, we, we I don't want to say we knew it was going to happen. We knew there was a really good chance it was going to happen, barring a miracle, and and. You know, it was it was basically the owners wanted a salary cap. They wanted some share of revenue. Uh, we weren't going to agree to that. So we knew, barring something crazy happening, we, there was going to be a strike and there was going to be a work stoppage because essentially that's what that's what happened every time there was a CBA in baseball. Um, so when we went on strike, it was for us as players, it was uh, a definitive line. We weren't gonna we weren't gonna go for a salary cap. So that's kind of what we were fighting on, and I think that's why it was difficult for the players early on in this thing and, and maybe a little bit harder for fans to understand. But at the same time, I said it early on uh, when the owners were talking about a revenue split, a 50, 50 revenue split, I think to the average fan that was like, okay, well that seems fair. Um, and, and I understand that. But the flip side of that is that's essentially what we fought against in 1994. We fought against the revenue split because it's essentially a salary cap so that was dangerous ground for the players to even be thinking about. So I was, I was not the least bit surprised uh, that they rejected that out of hand and tried to move on from there. So um, I felt kind of like at that stage of the game, the, the owners were going to be were, were winning the PR battle and the players were going to lose. But either way, if baseball wasn't played, baseball was going to lose. So it didn't really matter. Um, but so I think there is there are there are some similarities. Uh, in that sense, but I think in this case, obviously, nobody saw this coming. Nobody could have predicted this, and everybody's trying to react to it. Um, but I think that both sides maybe have made some mistakes in terms of the PR side of things and, and, and the battles in the newspaper and what have you. But in, in, in reality, that happened anyway in every CBA that I was a part of. Uh, and, it, and it just kind of goes with the territory. But I'm, I'm thankful, like I say, that it seems like it's gone in the right direction and we're getting closer and closer to a deal. If there's not one in principle already that we're going to hear about relatively soon. Tom, I'm curious because to me, if the owners are going to come to an agreement on 60 or 65 games, hundred percent prorated salaries, what took so long? I mean, you took three or four weeks. This to me is something that at least as far as that goes, I would have liked an agreement on this, you know, is that way July 4th, America's birthday. I know it's symbolic. I know, <laughs> You know, maybe I'm looking for the grand gesture here, but I'd love to have baseball Fourth of July weekend, those holiday weekends, no. and, and starting it off that way would, I think, really invigorate a, a country that needs it in a whole lot of ways. That, to me, is an obvious mistake on the owner's part, but as a guy who went through this from a player perspective, what were the mistakes that you saw, whether it's fighting through the media, leaking this sort of stuff out? Is there one thing that you've seen over the last you know, couple of weeks that you've said, wow, we should, as a players' union, be doing this differently? Well, I mean, I think I agree with you on the first part. There, there was a huge missed opportunity to oh, to start the season back up on July 4th. I mean, what better day 
to start the baseball season than July 4th. For whether, you know, if it's purely symbolic, who cares? I mean, we have a country that's gone through hell. Everybody's trying to find their way, find their norm. Part of their norm uh, is baseball. They want baseball back. So what better day to have baseball come back than July 4th? I mean, it would have been absolutely perfect. Unfortunately, it looks like we've missed that day. So now you move on past that and you look for silver linings. Now, are there things that, you know, both sides maybe could have done better? Of course there are. I mean, it's never, you know, I I made the comment in an article in Atlanta that the players were losing the PR battle and they would lose the PR battle if, if it came down to a 50-50 revenue split. And And my phone blew up when I made that comment. And it wasn't that... I was blaming the players. It was just simply that the perception is that under that situation, the players are, are, are going to be the bad guys. And, and, and I think subsequently, as negotiations have gone on, I think that playing field, field has leveled and, and maybe even gone more to the player's side um, because it just seems like the owners have kind of dug in and, and just really, regardless of what new proposal they made, it was essentially the same proposal, just dressed up a little bit differently. And I think people saw that. So I think people started to get turned off a little bit. Now, are there mistakes that are made during every negotiation? Of course there are. And and again, I was a part of a few of them, and, and they seem to follow the same roadmap, so to speak, in that a lot of your dirty laundry gets aired in the newspaper for some reason. And when that's going on, you can bet that they're nowhere close to getting a deal done. Uh, I think the fact that they haven't been able to sit down and have face-to-face meetings has hurt the process because, listen, you're always going to have hardliners on either side of the equation. You're going to have owners that are digging their heels in. You're going to have players that are digging their heels in. But when you're having those face-to-face meetings, the middle ground can kind of seek each other out and have conversations and see if there's some common ground that we can kind of center a conversation around. So they haven't been able to do a lot of that. So that certainly didn't help. But, you know, I just think at the end of the day, with the country going through what it's going through, I think both sides made a major mistake in terms of making this out to be an economic issue, which obviously is an economic issue, but I think they could have kind of kept that under wraps uh, and not made it such a public issue uh, because, that, like, I, like I said early on, it, it's going to turn people off. When you've got people that are out there that can't work and are losing virtually everything in their lives – and they hear millionaires and billionaires complaining over money, it doesn't sit well with them. So I think that was certainly a major mistake. Now, how do you get past that or how do you not deal with it? I don't know, but I, I will tell you this. I've been saying this for two or three weeks now. My extent, Again, my experience in negotiations were, were two things. Number one, you weren't going to get a deal done until everybody was ready to get a deal done. And, and that sounds silly. But that's just the way that it is. You know, people, both sides posture their positions. They hold their ground. They ask for the moon, knowing they may have to settle for the stars and whatever the case may be. But there's this whole song and dance you have to go through. So until people are truly ready to make a deal, then there's not going to be a deal. And inevitably, when you get a deal done, you're going to look at it and go, we could have done this three weeks ago. And I think that's going to be the case. You know, I mean, I think when, when this deal is ultimately done, if it's 60 or 65 games, there's going to be a lot of people out there scratching their head going, why did this take so long? We could have done this a month ago and, and not had to deal with all the ups and downs. And, and, and again, I have no other explanation. <laughs> and it sounds silly other than that's just it's part of the process. we got the Hall of Famer Tommy Glavin. He joins us here on The Fan. And Tommy, as a guy who can handle a bat, as a guy who can handle a golf club, 
How do you feel personally about the idea of a universal DH? Maybe it's me being an American League fan, and I know you could hit. Don't get me wrong. There are a whole lot of guys who now come into Major League Baseball who cannot. So will it bother you as a guy who could kind of hold his own in that regard to not see pitchers hacking away three or four times? It, it bothers me from a purist standpoint, but I can promise you exactly like you just said, it will, it will probably ease a lot of my frustrations um, because it really bothers me when I watch games nowadays and hit pitchers get in the batter's box and they have absolutely no chance of getting a hit. Uh, you know, that's something that we took pride in. You know, we worked at it. And I'm not, it's not to sit here and say that, you know, we were going to be great hitters or anything like that, but we weren't going to get in the batter's box and just be an automatic out. You know, we were going to get some hits. We were going to make the pitcher work a little bit. But bottom line is we were going to be able to if, – if our manager asked us to lay down a bunt, my God, I'm going to lay down a bunt. Like I used to say it all the time that – there would be a number of reasons that I would give my manager to take me out of take me out of a game because of how I was pitching. I damn sure wasn't going to let him take me out of a game in a in a late late in the game in a in a tie game or a one run game because I couldn't lay down a bunt. I mean, those are opportunities to stay in a game and win games that you lose out on. And to me, there was just no excuse for that. But in today's game, again, like I've said a lot, you're seeing now the generation of pitchers who who grew up as baseball players being pitchers only you know when I grew up when I played the game I played center field I played first base I pitched there was very few guys that I played with in my era that when they weren't pitching they weren't they were playing either shortstop or some other important position and hitting third or fourth in their lineup because they were athletes today's pitchers grew up in this generation of travel ball where a lot of them are pitchers only they don't play another position so to think that they have grown up their whole lives without hitting and now they're going to get to the big leagues and they're going to be able to hit, it's probably not fair. So my long-winded answer is I think the universal DH is coming, and, and, and I know it's been part of the discussions in, in getting baseball back this year, and I just kind of feel like it's, it's if nothing else, is kind of a trial balloon to see how it goes and see how people react to it. Um, but I, I think it's coming, but like I said, the purest in me, I don't love it. I understand it. I don't love it. And, and I can tell you that when I pitched, it was, you know, if I pitched in an American League ballpark um, and, and it, there, was no, there was no pitcher hitting, we had to have the DH, I felt like I was missing out on half the game. So I, I never liked it. Tell me, when you think about your career, obviously the clinching game, 95, game six, you think back now, you know, 20 plus years, is that the greatest game you ever pitched? Um, from a... Um, from a moment, so to speak, yes. Um, did I have a couple other games that I could look at that probably technically I was just as good and, and, and efficient and execution-wise was every bit as good? Yes, but not under those circumstances. You know, to, to do that in a World Series clinching game with, you know, all the attention on that game, the pressure of that game, to go out and have that kind of game, yeah, under those circumstances, absolutely. I mean, if anybody says to me, hey, what's the greatest game you ever pitched? And obviously that's it. Uh, I can think of a couple others that, like I said, from a technical standpoint, were were every bit as close to that, but not nearly the same circumstances. You guys think about what you were able to accomplish in Atlanta. I mean, winning the division every single year, going to the World Series multiple times. It's one of those things, Tom, that, you know, we look in this day and age, and yes, there have been dominant teams, and yes, there have been teams that win the division year in and year out. 
But to do it with the same core guys for the most part, you guys, you John Smoltz and Greg Maddox in the mid-1990s, looking back on that run in Atlanta, I mean, they may never see that as a franchise ever, ever again. So, like, you now, in this day and age where you're flipping on old games, you're, you're watching this give or take, do you, like, think back and, like, bask in the glory of those unbelievable days being a part of the Braves? I mean, I get a little bit, yeah. I mean, look, with... with um with no live action going on, right? There have been a lot of reruns. And, you know, I, like everybody else, will sit down and watch stuff. You know, I know uh, in Atlanta, Fox Sports did the 90, 1995 World Series, Game 1 to Game 6, start to finish. Um, so, yeah, you watch it. Of course you watch it. And, and it's fun because you relive memories. You remember some things that you had forgotten about uh, that makes it fun and all that stuff. So, yeah, of, co- of course I do. I mean, I... I I watch that stuff, and, and you know, it, it's hard not to kind of revel in it a little bit. Now, I'll say this. I, I, don't, I don't think it's possible to fully appreciate it when you're playing. I mean, we knew what we were doing was special. Um, we enjoyed the heck out of it. Um, but I don't think you fully appreciate it because you're, you're so immersed in it, and you're so um, hell-bent, so to speak, on, okay, well, we just won again, so that's seven in a row. Well, we better get eight, and we better get nine, and so you're caught up in that. And I think that now that it's over and you look back at it, it's a different kind of appreciation. Not Like I said, it's not that I didn't appreciate it when I was a player because I knew what we were doing was special, but when you're not caught up in it, you don't have the, the emotions of it, the nervousness of it, all that stuff, it's a little bit easier to appreciate. And, and I think in today's game – It'd be really, it's going to be really hard for anybody to ever do that again because, I mean, you look at me and Greg and John, I mean, there's no way in today's game economically you're keeping three guys like that together for 10-plus years like we were able to do. Um, you look at that team, and, and while we did have a core of guys that were there, myself and John and Greg and that chipper when he ultimately came up, we were the Braves were pretty good year in and year out, and uh, uh, injecting a rookie in the lineup. You look at that 95 team that won the World Series. We had Ryan Klesko, who was a rookie. We had Javi Lopez, who was a rookie. Uh, we had Chipper. So, I mean, we, we did that a lot. Bobby was not afraid to bring a guy up into the fold, even though he was a rookie, if he knew he could play. So we did have some turnover from year to year, but I think the, the core, like you said, of me and Greg and John and Chipper uh, were there for a long time, and that and that certainly helped. But um, – you know, yeah, I mean, of course you look back at it and think, man, that was a pretty special run and that was a lot of fun. And, and like I said, just hard-pressed to think anybody's going to be able to do that again just based on the economics of the game. Tommy, any of the close calls, you guys had a bunch. Does 96 having the 2-0 lead over the Yankees, seeing the Yankees win four straight, does that one bother you guys the most? I think that's the one that we let get away. You know, as much as we talk about, ah, we could have won more, we should have won more, you know, you look at the ones that we lost and versus the one that we won. You know, I mean, it, it, when we beat Cleveland, we made the clutch plays that we needed to make. We got the clutch hits that we needed to get. When you lose in a series like that, a lot of times it boils down to one clutch pitch. And, and you know, you look at uh, 92, it was the Ed Sprague home run. Uh, you know, we, we go from going to Toronto up 2-0 to going to Toronto 1-1. Big difference, right? That Make that one pitch, maybe that series goes differently. You look at Minnesota – uh, we had the, um, you know, the deke on Lonnie Smith on the ball in the gap where he lost the ball and stayed at second base when he could have scored. 
so, you know, that there's the play there. And, and, you know, so you can go down the list. I mean, I think the year the Yankees swept us, um, you know, we, we looked at each other and really had no idea how we got there because that was the one year, I think, in the run where we had a ton of injuries. Uh, I think Galarraga had a relapse of cancer. I think Javi blew out his knee. So, you know, we had all kinds of things going on, and we were just shocked to even be there. But the 96 series, yeah, I think that's the one – if you were to ask any one of us that we let get away from us to win two games on the road at Yankee Stadium, come home, uh, lost a tight game in, in game three, and then in game four, if I'm not mistaken, we had a big lead, uh, or we had a good lead, and then there was a fly ball down the right field line that got lost, uh, you know, between right field, second base, first base, ball falls in, the Yankees have a huge rally, and then the next thing you know, here we go. So um, I think that's the one that we would all say, man, that was the one that we, we probably let get away from us. Tom is a lifelong Atlanta Brave, and then you make the move to go to the New York Mets. You guys had those great rivalry, all those games in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Was that a weird thing for you to ever embrace the idea of being a Met? Of course it was. I mean, it was not, um, you know, it was not how I envisioned my free agency year going. I, I mean, I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. I mean, uh, I think everybody assumed, myself included, I was going to sign back with the Braves, and, and that was going to be the end of it. But it didn't work out that way. So, um, you know, staying within the, the division and, and, you know, playing against the Braves was, was an odd thing. No question about it. Uh, particularly that first year that I was in New York, it got better after that, but, um, but it was strange. No question. Um, but look at, I, I, I love my time in Atlanta. Uh, I equally love my time in New York. Um, you know, a lot of those guys in New York that I play with, I'm, I'm still really good friends with to this day. Uh, you know, and I had a ton of fun up there. I mean, look at the, it's, it's different up there. You know, the city, the city embraces things differently. Um, you know, I, I'd always heard when I got up there that, yeah, everybody loves the Yankees, but this is really a Met town and a National League town. And I didn't really see it until the year we got to the playoffs. And then it was like, oh my God, this is, you know, I understand what people were saying now. So, um, you know, it, it was a really good experience. And I've said this and I, and I mean it. I, 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 I wish every player would have an opportunity to play in New York at least one year. I know that from the outside looking in, when you go in there as an opposing player and you read the newspapers and you see the headlines and stuff, you think, my God, who would want to play here? But I'm telling you, it was a really cool experience. I think once you learn the lay of the land um, and you kind of learn how to deal with the overwhelming amounts of media that are there that, that's like nowhere else, um, you know, once you kind of find your way, it, it's it's a really fun place to play. So, you know, I I enjoyed the heck out of it. But yeah, I was I was probably as surprised as anybody that I ended up there. Tom, you had so many great games throughout your career. Do you look back on that final game in two thousand seven? On the flip side, is the worst game you ever pitched? Um, it was right up there. Yes, again, you know, one of those ones. Can I think of one or two more that probably were just as bad? Yes. Uh, but I was younger, um, and it was probably to be expected. Uh, but that game, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, to, to go back to the golf analogy, I mean, if I had a mulligan, that would be my mulligan. Um, I would, I would yeah, do that. Yeah, it's game a mulligan. Uh, no question you know, about it. But game five I mean, in 96, you know, you don't want the mulligan there. That's 300 right down the middle, baby. No, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was an awful ending to what was otherwise a great time up there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it. it I'll say this. I was not feeling good about my game going into that game and it it showed uh unfortunately in that game tom final one you guys had this incredible competition all those years with you maddox 
and John Smoltz, whether it's offensively, whether it's on the golf course, whether it's competing and trying to, you know, in a friendly way, one-up one another when you're on the mound. Now that you look back on it, and you, Greg Maddox, and John Smoltz are all a part of Baseball's Hall of Fame, is that like the ultimate form of competition? Like, how much better did those other two guys make you in the idea of saying, man, I got to keep up with Maddox. I got to keep up with Smoltz. I mean, I know, listen, I'm not a good athlete, but I can only imagine for a guy who is being a part of a special fraternity like that and then seeing it get all the way to the top of the mountain, it's got to be the highest form of praise. Oh, for sure. Listen, um, I've said it a number of times. Though, though, being around those guys made me better, and it made me better for a couple of reasons. Number one, like you said, we had, we had so many little friendly competitions with uh, hitting and golfing and, and to some extent pitching. Uh, and it was never, hey, I want to be better than you or I want, I want to get all the attention. It was, okay, if you had a good game, I want to go out and have a better game. Um, if you're hitting 200, I want to hit 220. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and, and ultimately what it did was it made us work at what we were doing. And, and what's wrong with that, right? If, if guys that you're around are great players and it, and it forces you to work harder and to make yourself better, what a great situation. And that's the situation we had. Now, like I said, all of it wasn't fun. We had a blast with all of it. We never competed with, you know, oh, I want to get the attention over you or whatever. We knew that, you know, there would always be conversations about, oh, who's the ace of the staff or who's the number one or who's going to be the Cy Young. And, and any given day or any given month, it was going to be one of us. One of us was going to have the hot hand, so it didn't really matter. But we ultimately knew that in order for us to do what we wanted to do as a team, we had to take care of our business. So nobody wanted to be the weak link in that chain. But – you know, also having those guys around to watch pitch on the nights that I didn't pitch and learn from them or having those guys around to where if I wasn't feeling good about something I was doing on the mound to be able to say to them, hey, watch me this inning and tell me if you see this. I'm feeling this that doesn't feel right. Tell me if you see that. And it's either, a, hey, you know what, I don't really see that. So you can check it off your list and move on. Or, yeah, you know what, you are. So that, okay, well, there's my correction. So, you know, just being around, like I said, and having having that knowledge of each other and what made, made each other tick was so valuable. Um, and and you know, like I said, we had we had so much fun off the baseball field with golf and whatever. And we used to get criticized for it, but I can promise you, ninety percent of our conversations on the golf course were about baseball. Whether it was who we just played or who we're getting ready to play, or hey, how do you pitch this guy or how do you pitch that guy. We were always talking baseball. So it, it's, to me, I think it's one of those things in today's game, from what I see from the outside looking in, that it's kind of a, it's kind of a lost thing. Guys don't seem to spend a lot of time talking to each other away from the clubhouse, uh, which to me, when I came up, was such a valuable thing. Whether you sat down and had a couple beers in the clubhouse after the game with veteran guys and talk shop or you went to dinner or whatever, I learned so much in those settings that, uh, you know, I, I can't tell you how valuable that was. And, and we were fortunate to do it as teammates for 10 years, which was, which was a huge blessing. Tom, thank you so much for the time. You were unbelievable. Continued success in the broadcast booth and uh, continued success on the golf course. I don't know. I know you don't need any good luck, but I mean. No, hey, I'll take all the luck I can be nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, listen, Tom, good. thanks for the time, man. Take care. All the best. All right. All right. Have a good night. There you have it. That's the Hall of Famer, Tom Glavin, who, trust me, I've seen him swing a golf club. He does not need any luck on the golf course. Must be nice. Hall of Fame pitcher, scratch handicap, him and Smoltz. I mean, my goodness.
Charm life every which way. It's 829 here on this Wednesday evening. It's DJ John Jastrzemski with Kim and your company right here on the fan. Get aboard at 877-337-6666. And trying to figure out the amount of games is going to be tricky. But I do believe we're moving closer and closer to a baseball season. And I think Tom Glavin hit on a really good point when it comes to the universal DH. We'll get to that. We got a lot more calls. We're back with more right after this. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal. So why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. 